the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. It is a delight to bring back my good friend, Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, how are you doing? I'm great, Seth, and good to be with you again. Good to be with you as well. Good to hear from you. Pete, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit, your intellect a little bit, your analysis a little bit about what we've seen maybe exposed a bit as the fault lines and the cleavages in this country over the past couple of weeks through the lens of the two conventions, the megaphones Mm -hmm. of the two conventions, if you will. We went through last week, uh, I was kind of paraphrasing uh, an old line and an old joke from Steve Martin, where you just got death and grief and sorrow and murder. And you have this week, where we have upbeat optimism, uh, obviously the slogan of American greatness and American exceptionalism. And I, 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 and I know when we talk that way, it drives them nuts and makes them angry. But yeah. how do you how do you see Amer- How do you think most Americans see this country? Where are most Americans these days on these divergent, very divergent tale of two cities views? Well, I believe that most Americans, like most human beings, want to love where they live. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about many times, this feeling of affiliation and connection um, to a variety of organizations, um, civic organizations, everything from our own family to the places where we work, where we live, the nation that we live in, um, we want to believe that these things are good. And even when they're not acting in at their best, that we have at least a standard by which to judge and aspire to. And so I think it's actually the, the movement on the left, which has been to go straight to the heart of the American founding yep. and essentially call it an original sin, right. one that needs to be overcome or even change the date of it if you want yeah yeah exactly yeah. just set it back yeah. you know 160 years, years. Yeah. Right, right. and and to do that <laughs> not only in the public square but in the schoolroom right um i think most americans no matter what your your political stripe it it grinds against something which is is to say even if I understand that the country that I live in um, has progress to make, I still believe it has within itself the ability 
to make that progress. And it, and it has that ability because it's demonstrated it over the centuries. But it's also done that in connection to those very same founding principles. And if we're going to strip away those founding principles and the things that have made America such an incredible experiment and reality, uh, I think I think it has to it has to cross and run against the grain for most people. They know that something is really unsettling if we're going to really say that um, aspiring to these things is 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 not right and is not founded in um, something worth preserving. I, I like your phrase against the grain because you think of what's granular about America and what you think about throughout our whole history as a country is it is that story of our great capacity for self-renewal. That is yeah. the story of America, of course, the capacity to self-renewal, whose tank is filled by the very words of our founding, right? I mean, that is yeah. where Abraham Lincoln went. That is where Frederick Douglass went. That is where Martin Luther King went. That is where the suffragettes went. This, this is where they go. And yet there's this pseudo-sophisticated intellectual attempt to take away that base as you laid it out, right, and to set that clock back some 150, 160 years earlier which deprives us of a founding based on, in the words of 1776, equality and liberty, which gives us the redounding ability to self-renew, to one that is a story of unfreedom. And the kids are polluted with this nonsense. The kids are polluted with this nonsense to the degree they're educated at all. And if they're not educated at all, I don't know if that's better or worse, but that is what you are seeing in the streets of Kenosha, Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle. You know, I, I, I'm hearing chants. I'm seeing chants in the news from these kids yelling, believe it or not, death to America, as if this is yeah. Beirut or Ramallah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I, I think you mentioned King before. Yeah. And I think what made him, as well as Frederick Douglass and others, so powerful is even in the midst of really to such tragic treatment that he experienced personally, such terrible, malicious, um, and obviously resulting in his own murder, uh, the treatment that he experienced, he was still able to call the American founding, and specifically the Constitution, a promissory note. And in so doing, what he was saying was, as with any promissory note, that the people who wrote it could be trusted and that the promissory note had within it a promise that could be redeemed. And a, I think a check that could be cashed. Left, a check that could be cashed, right? Right. Right. And 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 again, one that could be realized today. Now what the left has done and we could say at what parts of the left spectrum we're talking about, but certainly what some on the left have done, if they've said there's no such thing as a promissory note. Right. That constitution, everything from the Electoral College to uh, the two-member Senate um, per state, all that stuff was really founded by 
a group of essentially middle-aged and older white people, white men, who were trying to protect their own interests. Mm-hmm. And, and so essentially what the left has done is, especially on these issues of race, just to focus in that particular area, is they've told Martin Luther King, you don't know what you're talking about. That's exactly right. They are saying that that's 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 exactly right. They 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 and, and and so it's no mystery to me, quite frankly, that they discriminate not at all in the statuary that they take down because it's the entire yeah. edifice they want to take down, the entire structure that they want to take down. And it turns out, I think they don't know what they're talking about. Because the narrative of American history, we've talked about this before, too. I just can't say it often enough. The narrative of American history that they embrace is the history that Lincoln and Douglas fought against, that Justice McLean dissented from in the Dred Scott decision. You can get from our founding a history that it was one that intended to enslave people forever. Yeah. But you get it from Roger B. Taney's now totally... I thought discredited majority opinion in Dred Scott. You can get the history justifying segregation, but you have to go to the majority opinion in what I thought was the discredited Plessy versus Ferguson. There is another history here, and it was written by the dissenters in those cases, whether it was John Marshall Harlan and yeah. Plessy or whether it was McLean and Curtis in, 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 in um, Dred Scott. But that's what the weird thing is. The left has embraced Dred Scott and Plessy. And and you can keep going, right? I mean, you can get from Reconstruction, you can get Jim Crow, yep. but you can also get the Freedmen's yep. Bureau. Yep, yep, yep. Right? So yep. We, can, we can keep going down the line here at each point. And if we're only going to look at, as the 1619 Project does, and, and much of this strain of the left in, in viewing and understanding American history, we can always look at the at the one side of these arguments, but unless we understand that this was these were arguments, yep. <laughs> that yep. there were other sides to these that sometimes won and sometimes lost, and sometimes those who were seeking what we would all agree to be the right had to be patient and put certain things in place that would be eventually realized. That's such a good point. Um, Dean Peterson, there's some kind of different view from these conventions, not only of America, but of Americans, isn't there? Who, Who Americans are, not even just ideal Americans, but the common everyday Americans, isn't there? Yeah, so true. I, I, I think, Seth, what's been so remarkable to me um, as I've watched each night of the convention is to see how different it is, not only from the Democratic convention, but even previous Republican conventions. I had to go back and look at the speaker lineups for uh, 2016 and 2012 Uh just on the Republican side. And what really jumps out at you is – how few honorifics there are in front of the names of most of the speakers. That's interesting. Right? There's no, there, there are very few, you know, Republicans are, you know, often they trot out their senators, yeah. they trot out their congressmen oh, that's and women. A good point. Yeah. And, and in this, it really is so many 
I don't even want to say common women, men and women, because all of the stories and that that we're hearing are just of extraordinary people. But in so doing, you you get this feeling now after after three nights that this isn't just a a particular party convention uh, where we're recognizing and and trying to give some sort of time in the spotlight to future Republican leaders. This is about a movement that is highlighted and demonstrated and illustrated in the lives of the speakers that we're seeing. And I, I think it makes for, it's it's almost like an asymmetric battle against the Democrats who, uh, who are out there with, you know, their TV stars and uh, movie stars and, and various you know musical artists and so on, and aside from the you know kind of pop culture relevance of that, you know this just feels so much more real. Well, you just taught you just taught a whole you just taught a whole semester in what you in your answer there, Pete. That that that's a fantastic observation, and if I can just see if I understand it, you know. This experiment in self-government that we like to call our, our Republican form of government is one that trusts the people. And you're talking about the common American and not ones who have honorifics attached to their names or titles attached to their names. And what this party has done, and maybe more uniquely even, if I might, what Donald Trump has done, yeah. is shown the extraordinariness of the common American. Now, the word common is an interesting one because that's where we get the idea and the word community. Yeah. And this is why we see American greatness. And it's the, um, the, um, the downgraded view of the common American from the left, which is what I think has riven us so much. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just let's look. I'm just flipping through here, the speakers, and each one, it's, as I see, like Sister uh, Sister Deidre Byrne last night. I mean, a nun no one had heard of, at least perhaps nobody. not in America. They they certainly know her in Haiti and in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Um, a doctor, full colonel, nun. <laughs> I yeah. mean, my goodness gracious, an American. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, and to your point about the extraordinary common person, yeah. just to. Look, the 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 and and uh, San Nicholas Sandman's mm-hmm. you know yep. uh, presentation the other night. I mean, these are people that uh, in this case greatness was thrust upon them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this was somebody that that got dragged into something, attacked, and and managed to persevere. And I think as we think about all of these stories, Sissy Lynch, uh, Abby Johnson, good grief, her story. I mean. And again, so many of the stories which makes them so powerful are our own personal journeys that they've been on, whether it's politically, emotionally, professionally, whatever the case might be, which again goes back to that point you were making, Seth, about the, the unique greatness of America is that ability to to change and develop and, and to and to seek happiness, which I think is so evident in all of these people. Clarence Johnson yesterday. I mean, just incredible stories, um, you know, really. Or Clarence Henderson, um, just really incredible 
the the Sandman thing is an interesting one to me as well, because you're right. He had something thrust upon him that he didn't ask for, and he embraced it. He embraced it by putting that hat back on at the end, right? I mean, that was that was just really well done. (laughs) But it was something that I think so many Americans could understand, which was the unfairness of the elites. And they saw in him what they see the elites do to us in different ways every day, right? No, that's so true. I think that 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 salmon story really is a metaphor. You know, I I think I'm sure you've seen this recent video by a Washington Post reporter of a diner in a Washington, D.C. restaurant who's eating outside because we're all eating outside. Right. And is accosted by a mob of, I don't know, 40 or 50 people that are demanding that she raise her arm. I mean, these are these little examples that, you know, the left can say, oh, you know, these are kind of one-offs. But you look at something like that, you hear the sandwich. You have thousands of one-offs and they're not a one-off anymore, right? Yeah, and it's not just that. I think we've all we've been in places where the conversation goes to a certain point, mm-hmm. and you you're feeling the pressure to go along, not yes. even to the dramatic degree that this this particular diner was. But I mean, there's an enforced is, there's an enforced unification of consent that yeah. is nothing so much as redolent of every tyranny we've ever fought, right? So, so true. I mean, it was, again, you know, the the, the great uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who, who knew quite well that one of the great perils of the Democratic Republic was that this this tyranny of the majority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and and now we see it in this cancel culture, which is unfortunately being egged on by the media and magnified by social media that um that again has, and we're seeing it in the surveys, the public opinion surveys about people willing to express themselves. Uh, vast majorities of Americans saying they're they're just biting their lip. Yep, that's and, why I think um, November third is going to be them saying, "Hear me roar, Pete." I've been doing a lot of rereading of the '60s and early '70s, and on race issues, on youth issues. I, um, you remember Irving Kristol? Yeah, of course. Before he was a think tanker, he was actually a professor of urban policy. And I was um, reading an old essay of his from 1970 called When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness. I'll send it to you if you want. But he's talking about the youth riots then. And can I just read you something? He said it's almost as if he came out from the grave to talk to us today. He said he wrote, Our youthful rebels are anything but inarticulate, and though they utter a great deal of nonsense, the the import of what they are saying is clear enough. What they are saying is that they dislike the liberal individualist capitalist civilization that stands ready to receive them as citizens. They are rejecting this offer as citizenship and are declaring their desire to see some other kind of civilization replace it. I thought, holy cow. That was 1970. It couldn't be more true than it is today. And they're less shy about it. And the name Marx is more popular now than maybe it has ever been since, I don't know, the 1920s. Yeah, and of course, if you look back to the the era that Irving Kristol was reading or writing to, 
Um, it wasn't a generation that had already gone through what I call the, the zinification right. of, uh, of American civics and American. Right, right, right. They were, they were raised on Henry Steele Commager and uh, Daniel Borston and yeah. Samuel Elliott Morrison. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and there was a general American civic culture yeah. that, um, that certainly in the 60s was under withering attack, but it had to be attacked once this baby boomer generation had reached into their late teens and early 20s. Now we have have a generation who, even from early elementary school, are being barraged by these messages of uh, America being this, um, as we said before, founded in original sin and, and really needs to be, to borrow the phrase, uh, fundamentally transformed. Yeah. And, of course, we all know that the 1619 Project wasn't just a series of articles in the New York Times. It's now become an actual high school and grade school curriculum yep. that is finding its way into thousands of school districts around the country. And, and so, the Smithsonian, yeah, and our right. national museums, right. Exactly right. Right. Yes. So, I mean, these these are, are pervasive and young. We're going through this now in California. Seth, you may have heard about this new ethnic studies. Oh, curriculum. I was talking about it. I was reading Bill Evers' op-ed earlier. Right, 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 right. And of course, this is the second pass out, yeah. right? So, <laughs> right. right. When you, uh, I think we may have talked about this months ago when it first came out in the L.A. Times of all places, the editorial board, not not an not an opinion piece, but the editorial board came out and said it was basically sociological gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the and and Governor Newsom himself, yeah. himself said it had gone second, you know, first, same as the first, one might say, huh? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so now we've got the second version out, and yeah. it's only a little bit better than the than the first version, but but not by much. And right. again, to go back to Crystal's remarks, it's chipping away at yeah. all the pieces, whether it's our capitalist economic system or our liberal individualist um, uh, government and, and theory on uh, conception of citizenship. Um, you know, all these things are are under attack and and remain so. It took a Californian to understand in 1968 that there was another America out there, the non-shouters, and they prevailed in that election. You think we'll do it this time? I don't know. I I would say, and I I tell some of my friends on the left who who are feeling pretty confident just looking at the various polls that are out there, I I don't know another time in American history where it's been more difficult to be vocally supportive of the incumbent president. Mm, mm, and mm. so I think that reverberates in polling. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't answer calls from mm-hmm. pollsters or mm-hmm. respond to text messages. They don't like being told they're bigots and stupid. They just don't like Exactly. It. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so I, I, I do think that we really need to take with somewhat of a at least a, a jaundice eye, the polling that we're seeing, but but I think it's fair to say that uh, he's got some work to do. President Trump does if he's going to get reelected. Well, we're going to help him. We're going to help yeah. him. Pete Peterson, it's always a delight. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you, Seth. As always, Pete Peterson, dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Godspeed to you. 
Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. I want to talk to you for a moment about a group I've done work with for years, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. You've seen how your freedom is under attack. Go to townhallreview.com to find out how you can join Alliance Defending Freedom to help ensure the opponents of freedom don't dictate your future. That's townhallreview.com. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. The fiery riots convulsing American cities have begun to resemble the devastating violence of the late 1960s and will likely end the same way. Between 1965 and 69, more than 150 American cities exploded in episodes of race-based destruction, beginning with L.A.'s Watts riot that killed or injured more than 1,000 and destroyed 1,000 buildings. Princeton scholar Omar Wasso studied the election that followed the riots, finding that areas scarred by unrest showed sharp increases in support for law and order candidates. By 1972, Richard Nixon, the proudly proclaimed law and order president, carried 49 states with an epic 61 percent popular vote landslide by denouncing the leftist takeover of the Democratic Party with the candidacy of George McGovern. In other words, Americans overwhelmingly rejected the violent protesters in both inner cities and on college campuses so that radical resistance soon subsided. A crucial lesson for today's nihilistic agitators and their feckless apologists. I'm Michael Medved. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.